lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, we're going to start out by welcoming new members to our listener community in the Facebook group, and it's called the Still Growing Podcast Group on Facebook. And new members this week included Letty Elkadam, Kathy Grave of Stony Creek Landscapes, and Mary Ann Rupert. Welcome, you guys. And don't forget that the Still Growing Podcast Group is the place for all the listeners and guests of the show to gather. You can ask questions, you can share your own garden stories, and you can interact with the great guests that are featured on Still Growing. And here's the secret. It's also where I post all of the really awesome promotions and giveaways from my guests and sponsors for my lucky listeners. So go ahead, check it out. I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing podcast group. It also happens to be a place where I curate and post all of the content that I think you guys would enjoy throughout the week. So this week, some of the things that are in the group are a striped jelly recipe from a past guest, Lori Neverman of Common Sense Homesteading. So if you haven't seen a striped jelly picture on some of the social media platforms like Facebook or Instagram or even Pinterest, you will be amazed when you see how beautiful Lori's striped jelly turned out. But basically, she tells the story of running across an example of striped jelly on a Facebook group, and it had this picture of a jelly that had a lighter color jelly and then another row of a a darker color jelly and then just kind of back and forth like that. And it makes for a really, really, really pretty gift. So Lori used these 12-ounce quilted jelly jars, and she did this project with her sister-in-law. And they put together these jelly jars, and she is sharing how she did it and giving some tips. So unlike some of the other posts where they kind of keep that information back, Lori is letting you know what she thinks you need to do in order to make that look really successful. And when they're done, she says, and I love how she phrases this, she says, it creates kind of a lava lamp look. So you can control how that jelly is getting put into those jars and then create the design that you want. But she just did layers. It looks like a layer of um, jelly. And then, of course, you've got to work to put together flavors that you think go together. So It's something that'd be really fun to do for Christmas, and I thought you guys would like it. Also, um, Amy Steinhauser in our group had just posted her jelly jars that she had put together, and Letty had commented how she was looking for a low-sugar recipe, and Lori used a combination of low-sugar jellies and jams with higher-sugar jellies and jams when she was doing her striped jelly jar. So something to consider. You can kind of mix and match if you decide to put something like this together. Another thing that I found this week that I thought was really fascinating, actually, is a gentleman by the name of Kenny Gould, who had recently shared five things that happened when he ate the same dinner every single night for a month. And what he was eating was an organic dinner 
that was based on these five basic organic ingredients, chicken, broccoli, chicken broth, cream of chicken, and small shell pasta. Anyway, great meal, but he ate it for 30 days, every single night. And he came up with a surprising list of discoveries that he made as he pursued this basic meal plan as a strategy for what to make for dinner. So when I posted about this, I called it the food equivalent of what Mark Zuckerberg does with his wardrobe every day because he wears the same outfit every day. He has all the same shirts and all the same pants, so he doesn't even have to think about getting dressed. Well, this would be the suppertime equivalent of that where you make the same thing for 30 days and you don't even have to ask what's for supper because you already know. I wonder what the kids would think if I decided to cook the same basic thing for supper every single night for a month. I think they'd crack. I don't think that they could make it, especially PJ, because he loves food so much. He's so food-oriented that I think he wouldn't be able to handle it. Emma's a little more disciplined. I think she could make herself do it. And I think John could eat mac and cheese every day of the week. So for him, it might not be that big of a stretch. And Will's such a picky eater that I wouldn't even consider something like this for him. Well, 10th Acre Farm also had a great post this week. It was so pretty. It was about using fireflies as a pest control measure in the garden. Because as they point out, firefly larvae is predatory. They eat snails and slugs. So if you're struggling with snails and slugs in your garden, the challenge is, can you create firefly habitat to help minimize those pests in your garden. It's a great little post. And then Jen McGinnis of the blog Frau Zenny, also a former guest of the show, had shared this really cute little DIY hydrangea wreath video from Endless Summer Hydrangeas. It's sweet and it's a great reminder that there's plenty of time to get in the garden and do some crafty things. Don't let those hydrangeas just sit out there and disintegrate in the wind and the snow and the cold. Go out and bring some in. Take some cuttings. Now's the time. And you can do fun things like the hydrangea wreath. And last but not least, I shared this really awesome article from a newspaper in Nashville where they were featuring farmhouse chef Trey. And he shares his James Beard worthy sausage ball recipe. This looks fantastic. He actually said in the article that he created this recipe for a special Christmas dinner that he had to attend and cook for. And that's what I immediately thought is how great this would be for parties at the holiday time and just winter in general. It just sounded perfect. In fact, I was ready to get in the kitchen and cook after I read this recipe. Well, this week marks the final week of the Still Growing Book Club. And of course, we've been reading Marta McDowell's All the President's Gardens. I hope you've been enjoying the book as much as I have. I love the book. So this week, we cover chapter eight, the final chapter, and it's titled, Is Green the New Red, White, and Blue? And it's covering the period of time from the 1990s to the present. And of course, you're going to find Michelle Obama's kitchen garden is then there. And in my interview with Marta, she talked about the experience of getting to see the kitchen garden firsthand with the White House gardener. And of course, thanks to Burpee, the White House kitchen garden is now going to be a permanent part of the White House grounds. 
So anyway, this week, look for my post that will have supplemental videos and questions that you can ask to your garden club if you're following along and you want some good discussion questions that you can ask for chapter eight. That will be on my blog this week. Well, today's show is a wrap on the 2016 Garden Bloggers Fling that was held in Minneapolis this past July. And I have with me today four fantastic garden bloggers who attended the fling with me, Helen Battersby of of the blog Toronto Gardens. Helen writes this blog with her sister, and they've been blogging for 10 years. So this month, in fact, marks their 10-year anniversary. Very special month for them. And Helen is also a freelance writer. Joining Helen is Gail Eichelberger of Nashville, Tennessee, and she blogs at Clay and Limestone. And Gail has a special focus on wildflowers. In fact, Gail started Wildflower Wednesdays, where she's posting about wildflowers. So if you have a wildflower question or you want to share your wildflowers, make sure you get over to Clay and Limestone. Also joining us from the fine group of Austin, Texas garden bloggers is Diana Kirby, and her blog is called Sharing Nature's Garden. Of course, the garden bloggers fling originated with Austin blogger Pam Pennick. So we owe a debt of gratitude to the ladies in Austin who decided to start getting together and talking about their shared interest in gardens and blogging and then decided to go ahead and start the fling. And then last but not least, joining us is Julie Thompson Adolph of the blog Garden Delights. And of course, she blogs out of South Carolina. And Julie's great because she helped join in on my two shows recently where we were picking our spring flowering bulbs from Van England and Color Blends. So that was great. Now, in this episode, Julie has to leave early because she's picking up her kids from basketball, but you'll hear her in the first part of this episode. So just remember, you can find her at the blog Garden Delights. Well, today is a wrap. It's the final day of the fling, and you're about to hear from these four ladies what it was like to be there on the last day of the Minneapolis Garden Bloggers fling, and many have said they saved the best for last. Well, hello, ladies, and welcome to our day three review of the Garden Bloggers Fling 2016 that happened in Minneapolis this year. Just to remind people, to remind listeners, this is the third part in our three-part series about the Garden Bloggers Fling, which is a special meetup for garden bloggers that happens every year, and this year it was in the Twin Cities. And before we get started, I want to introduce the group of bloggers that are going to be reviewing our day three, and they are Gail Eichelberger, Julie Thompson-Adolph, Diana Kirby, and Helen Battersby. Ladies, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves. Gail, do you want to get us started? Absolutely. I'm Gail, um, and I'm blogging in Nashville, Tennessee, which is extremely hot and humid right now, and my blog is Clay and Limestone, and when the first time I put the spade in the ground and I hit a rock, I knew that was going to be the name of my blog. <laughs> um, it's a zone 6B, 7A, depending upon how wicked our winters are. And I've been a flinger since 2008 when we went to the first one in Austin, and I've only missed one. And it is just a fabulous experience, and I have to make it a part of my life every year. I've been going in this particular space for about 30 years, so I have a lot of experience hitting rock, hmm. and 
because there's a lot of rocks here. I've built walls out of the rocks that's in my garden. But I'm a mostly native plant gardener. I hope some of your listeners are in tune with that because native plants are the way I have found to go in difficult gardening conditions. We have Gail's garden. About Helen. You'll hear about me later. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. And Gail, so, that's a great point about natives because that's one of the benefits that a lot of people don't consider, that if you are in a difficult climate or you have a challenging soil situation, you can look to what would naturally grow there and you'd probably have an easier time growing it. Yeah, that's a really great point, Jennifer. I, it took me about five years before I realized that I was just killing everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that about gardening, that you, you know, that if you do kill things, then you'll finally figure out what makes sense for your garden. Hmm. Gail, out of curiosity, what's one of your favorite natives to grow? Well, any of the Asteraceae I'm really crazy about. But right now, I am just when I look out in the garden, I just see about five different Jokai weeds. Hmm. And I know they're really big plants up in the upper Midwest. Yes. Um, they're just fabulous pollinator plants. Butterflies, bees, all kinds of beetles are on it. And so they just make me happy every time I look out there. They are a tremendous pollinator plant. I'll agree with you there. How do you handle the uh, spreading? Do you just pull them if you don't want them in a spot, or do you let them go crazy? You know what? I'm I'm, t- I'm all about what I call rough and tumble wildflowers. Let them just take off and you know, and just compete with each other because it, it's easier for me to garden that way to just let colonizers be. And sometimes I dig them up. The problem with for us is that Joe Pie likes a lot of moisture, so I have to water it if I want to make it happy, so it really doesn't take off here. Okay. Huh, that's interesting. All right, Miss Julie, you want to go next? All right. Well, and I'm Julie, and uh, like Gail, I also do a lot of gardening in clay, and we've been amending and amending and amending our soil. We live in uh, upstate South Carolina, so we've got that beautiful red, hard-to-dig red clay. It's lovely. Mm. Um, I'm primarily, I blog at Garden Delight. That's where I've been blogging since about 2008. I'm also a travel writer and write at Traveling Mom. So it's kind of a tricky thing, you know, balancing that love of travel with the love of gardening and trying to keep your garden alive while you're traveling. And it's always kind of an interesting thing at our, at our place. Um, right now, primarily I focus on organic gardening, doing a lot of edibles. We live in a subdivision and We've been on the farm tour, the South Carolina farm tour, for many years, and people always pull in and look at our house like, where's the farm? You know, we're in on, on a cul-de-sac, and <laughs> we have a homeowners association. People are like, why are we here? Wow. And part of the reason is, you know, they want to show people you can grow a lot of food in your backyard. You know, you don't have to have acres and acres. We have a little less than an acre. Back up to the river has a lot of shade. So it's always, you know, I'm always on that edge. People say... You can't grow tomatoes in less than six hours of sun, and, you know, that's primarily what I grow. I grow a lot of heirloom tomatoes. So I'm always trying to kind of break rules and see what I can do. If someone tells me I can't do something, I'm going to try it until I kill more plants than actually live and see how things are going to work out. So I'm one of those kind of renegade gardeners. I have, we have a little zoo going on here. We have seven chickens, three kids, three dogs, the puppy in the mix. Uh, cat, every feral cat comes to live at our house because my children are constantly recruiting every animal to, you know, add to the zoo here. So it's just, it's always madhouse. And the fling is wonderful. And I'm so thankful to have met these ladies that I'm chatting with today because they've become great friends. I still always feel like I'm a newbie at the fling, but I've gone now for five years. I started going to the very first one in Asheville because it was close to home. 
it is the best thing. I look forward to it every single year. As much as I travel, that is just like the best trip of my year because I know I'm going to get to go spend four fabulous days seeing beautiful gardens, hanging out with wonderful ladies and, and men too. Some of the men that go are just fantastic. And it's just a great time. There's no pressure. There's no seminars. It's just beautiful gardens, lovely friends, great wine, good dinner. You know, it's, it's just a great respite from the rest of the world. All right, Diana. I'm Diana Kirby. I garden in Zone 8B in Austin, Texas, which I am continually, like Julie, trying to stretch into nine because I have um, I have a lot of different garden styles in my garden, but I'm particularly fond of tropical. Um, we live in such a hot place with the Death Star here that I like a lot of bright, hot colors in the garden. And so I'm always trying to stretch the envelope a little bit. Austin, Texas is where I garden. It's where it all began. We had the first fling here in Austin in 2008. It just began as an idea. We had gotten together locally, those of us that read each other's blogs and decided to meet in person. And we'd done that a couple of times and found it was delightful to, to spend time with fellow garden bloggers who were passionate about the same thing. So we invited people and kind of like Field of Dreams, they came. Wow. Uh, I've been to to all nine of the flings. I love them. And like Julie says, it's a respite. It's it's my favorite trip of the year. It's it's so inspiring and invigorating and energizing. I've been blogging for about 10 years. For a living, I'm a landscape designer and installer. I've been writing for our paper here, the Austin American Statesman, for six years. I've done a monthly gardening column. I have two kids, 32 and 13, and two bulb and tomato-eating dogs. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I also garden. I have the dogs inside the fence, and I have deer outside the fence. So we're pretty clear oh, yeah. challenged here sometimes, um, which is okay. It just leads you to do more creative gardening. I guess my, you know, my garden styles in and around my landscape would be Zurich, a little southwest cottage. I have some tropical things around the pool. And I'm also a small vegetable gardener, uh, which I love. I think there's nothing better than a homegrown tomato. And you know what I forgot when I was talking about my garden blogging experience is to give you the name of my garden blog, which is sharing nature's garden at blogspot.com. At blogspot.com. Okay. I share all those same passions with these men and women that come to the flings, love seeing different parts of the country and what different kinds of gardens have to offer and to look at beautiful and unique garden designs all across the country and into Canada, which is where we were last year, which was gorgeous. I'm a big promoter, big advocate of the fling. Um, We're hoping to come back to Austin in 2018. So for you listeners that have never been to the fabulous city of Austin, we would welcome you here. Helen, I was so nervous the first time. This is Gail. I was so nervous yeah. the first time I came. I was a brand-new blogger. I was, like, just a couple months into blogging that I brought my husband with me to Austin, and then I shushed him away with someone else who brought her husband, too, and I never saw him <laughs> except at night the entire time I was there. And it was funny. Oh, that's so funny, Gail, because Peter, my husband, this is Julie, made noises about coming to Toronto last year. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I think you would have so much more fun staying home with the kids while I hang out with my friends. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Diane, are you, are you done, or can I butt in and talk about myself? You, you, just, you just jump right in there, Helen. 
that's our way. Okay, so I'm the last up. I'm Helen, and I blog with my sister from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, on torontogardens.com. And we're actually celebrating our 10th anniversary this year, like Diana. And we're going to be doing some special things around October when that happens. My sister and I were born in the UK, and so we have a really strong kind of English gardening kind of gene makeup. But unfortunately, we can't translate that to our Toronto gardens too much because we garden on feet and feet and feet and feet and feet of <laughs> yellow sand under Norway maples. Yes, dry shade. And so we have to have had to adapt our thinking quite a bit. I've uh, been on a small city garden for 30 years. And so writing about the garden and thinking about the garden and looking at other gardens has helped us make, um, I guess, a transformation in our ideas of what's possible. Toronto, people are often surprised to learn, is USDA Zone 5 and, and Canadian Zone 6. Actually, the difference between Canadian and U.S. garden zones is one of the more popular posts on our blog. The fling, which I adore, I was completely hooked the first time I went in Buffalo, and that's where I met many of you and Julie later. I was foolish enough to suggest Toronto as a place for the fling for 2015 and was one of the <laughs> organizers for that. And we had a really wonderful time hosting about 70 bloggers in Toronto, and I promise never to do that again. Um, <laughs> as we know from attendees, you know, it's the most wonderful experience in the world. You go there, you, you don't have to worry about anything except showing up to the bus, and, you know, you, you've got it rooted, and beautiful gardens have been vetted, and lunch shows up at lunchtime, and often there are great dinners. So it's just a worry-free experience and great garden experience. Normally, in real life, I'm a freelance <laughs> writer. I, I, work, I work from home, and I've been doing that for a long time. Married, we have three grown-up kids that, in theory, should give me more time for gardening. But, uh, you know, it's always variable when you're a freelancer. It's feast or famine. Yeah, you worry whether you'll get it all done or you worry whether you'll ever work again. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Before we chat about day three, we've touched a little bit about uh, why someone would want to go to the fling. And this upcoming fling, 2017, is going to be in the Washington, D.C. area. And Tammy touched on that when we were talking with our day one Garden Blogger Roundtable. But specifically, I'd love to get your input on advice you would give to bloggers who are curious about the fling and then how they can maximize their time there. Next year's fling will have a capacity of 100 bloggers. And if you were a brand new blogger, Going to the fling for the very first time, what advice would you have for that blogger? Okay, this scale. What I'm, what I was thinking about that a lot. I was thinking that one of the best things that they could do is to read and comment on our Facebook page and get to yeah. know the bloggers that attend every year, and then even visit the blogs of the attendees and comment. Comment is, you know, commenting is the best way to start a conversation with bloggers and to, to have a back and forth. And so your name will become familiar to us who attending all the time. 
But, the, you know, but before that, if people are just even thinking about it, they should give themselves permission to go and not be afraid um, because it's a, such a warm and inviting group of people. And you might come a stranger, and, but you will leave with lifelong friends. I mean, it is the most incredible experience of and and we have you know we we might be coming from different parts of the of the United States and Canada and we even have some people from the UK but we all share this passion for gardening and it's so exciting to be to be there so i would say you know comment on blogs visit blogs and and sign up for the facebook page and really get to know people I totally yeah, agree I, with that, Gail. I because I haven't gone as often as the rest of you. This is Julie again. And the first time I went to Asheville, I was like, oh, I'm going to go meet all these bloggers that have been blogging forever, and I was so nervous, and I knew no one, and I, you know, still had little kids at home. I'm like, you know, I just need to get away for a weekend. I'm going to go <laughs> and and just go put myself out there. And it's really hard to do that at first, but I did exactly what you said. I started really trying to connect with people um, virtually on Facebook, commenting on their blogs. And it got to the point that I felt like I knew people before I even got there. And then yeah. to meet in real life, it was really such, yeah. you know, it was such a pleasure. You finally get to meet these friends, these virtual friends. And it was, it was delightful. It was really, really wonderful. And I always say, too, to try to get in a little bit early if you can. To try to get in the day before or maybe stay a day after. You know, I always trouble with that, just trying to, you know, not... That mom guilt. This is Diana. Just know that, you know, a large number of people in the group are going to be just like you. Um, oh, yeah. Venturing out. And so everybody's kind of in the same boat. And it's a very friendly group. And you, you go around on buses. You can switch seats on the bus and get to learn about other people and gardening in other parts of the country. And the, the beauty of it, that we're all garden bloggers, is that we have so much in common. We have our passion for gardens and design. Um, and our interest in, in writing about and sharing and communicating about our gardens. And so that's what binds us all together. Um, mm-hmm. And people are just very friendly and welcoming. And uh, so I would say just, you know, book your flight and pack a bag and be prepared to be on the bus all day. And what's what I love about it, you don't have to do much of anything. So you, you show up at the bus and they take you to beautiful gardens and they feed you. And you have entertainment all day long, and it's just so much fun and so relaxing. This is Helen. I agree with what everyone's been saying, the idea of visiting the blogs of other people. I think what made it so great for me for my very first blog is that when Botanical was still running. And Botanical, oh, yeah. Botanical made it imperative that you go and visit other people's websites and look at their blog and ideally comment. I always commented. I never made a botanical, you know, some people would game it to sort of get their blogs up to guru status. I just did it organically, and I felt I got to to read people's blogs and comment. I was so much better at commenting in those days than I, I have become recently, which is a shame. Because we forget the social part of social media and tend to rely on things like Facebook. Um, yeah. You know, if you have a page and you post on Facebook. But anyway, we can sort of invent our own botanical. So not only do you want to follow people on their blogs, find out if they have a Facebook page, favorite it. You know, that way things will show up in your stream. And then you feel a little less lonely. When you get there. Now, I did find that I saw, because so many of us 
get hooked into the play. And we end up, um, you know, sitting with people we know already. That I did, I did uh, find that a few of the the newbies, if you want to call them that, you know, they were looking a little uncertain, and I'm sure they felt differently by the end of it. You know, I think it's important for us regulars to go out and change seats and talk to people that we don't know and that kind of thing. Naturally, an introvert, actually, which is why so blogging is so great for me, but, you know, I sometimes feel shy about plunking myself down to some a stranger, but I do do it from time to time, and I'm always glad that I did. So, other than that, I think the plane is the, not only the best blogging experience, but the best garden tour experience on the planet, because how where else can you get everything that everyone has already described for so little money? There's a real conscious effort on the part of the fling organizers to keep the fling affordable. So that, you know, it's not like a $3,000 garden tour, it's a tenth of that. And you get an in-depth and insightful and interesting look at a city. I would encourage anyone who has been blogging for a year on a regular basis to look at the uh, next fling, which is going to be an exciting place. Well, they're all exciting places. I didn't expect to be excited about Minneapolis, but I found it really interesting. And so now we're going to uh, the national capital region next, the year after, Austin. Who knows what it's going to be the year after that? This is Gail again, and I would say that you won't be disappointed if you come. You just can't be. It's just true. Yeah, I agree completely. No matter where it is. And I, you know, I also, this is Julie again, too. I really want to give a big shout out to the sponsors because they, they go into this and they provide so much for the garden bloggers in terms of, you know, offsetting a lot of our expenses, but also providing oh. some little bits of swag. And, but they never, of course, they hope we'll end up writing about them, but there's never any, any stipulation that you have to cover all the sponsors and write about them in your blog. They do this just you know, with a lot of faith. So they, they really help make this one possible and not make Thank it you. be so unaffordable. So, and, and as a former organizer, I can really, really give thumbs up to that comment because yeah. uh, we, could, we couldn't have done it without the support of the organizers. And they didn't just give money in kind. As you say, they also gave experiences. You know, in Toronto, that wonderful flower-arranging demonstration by Paul Zammett of the Toronto Botanical mm-hmm. Garden. You know, it just added an extra little sparkle to an already you know, fun event. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest benefits of the Garden Bloggers Fling and blogging in general is the connections that you make with other people that share your passion. And it was my mm-hmm. first time at the Garden Bloggers Fling. And one a piece of advice that somebody had given me who had just gone to a conference in another industry was get your business cards made. And that was so helpful because as I was running into other garden bloggers and it is overwhelming because you're there with 60 other, you know, bloggers and sponsors and you're trying to meet people and keep them straight. It was so much more helpful to me to get someone's business card. I don't know what it was about having that physical 
business card, but it made a difference in my ability to kind of remember who they were. Um, and then mm-hmm. you have their blog name, you have their contact information. And I have to say, garden bloggers have beautiful business cards. So if you're making a business card and you're a garden <laughs> blogger, get some photography <laughs> on that card. I mean, I, there was one lady that I exchanged business a business card with, and she had like seven different uh, business cards because they all featured different flowers, different nice. pieces, you know, beautiful oh, photos nice. that she had. Yeah, it was absolutely gorgeous. This is Diana. Gardeners who don't always necessarily have business cards who might not be in the business of gardening um, often come to the playing with, I think they're um, those little moo cards, which are yes. smaller, and you can have all the different photographs on there. And so it's so fun to compare cards, too. I mean, we've We've certainly spent time at previous flings sitting around looking at everybody's pretty pictures on their cards. So there's there's all of that to share, too. Yes. Well, and the other thing I was going to mention is that so I was local. So when we were going to nurseries and if we ever had a chance to shop, of course, I'm shopping because I could get it home no problem because I live in the Twin Cities. But some of the gals were buying plants just as fast and furious. And I'm like, how are you getting that home? And they're like, oh, we've got a system. We bring a shoebox. We bring, they have all these things to, you know, get plant material from the host city back to their home. Do you guys do that? And what are your uh, tips and tricks? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. (laughs) We do. (laughs) I think it's not your penny. I'm the shoebox gal. Pam and I room together, and I'm the shoebox gal. I always bring a shoebox full of snacks and granola bars and things at the beginning, and then we empty it out, and we eat all of that. And then I come home with my breakables or my plants into an empty shoebox in the middle of my suitcase. (laughs) Oh, that's clever. (laughs) I take a big, like a big tote bag because I love, I know it sounds really ridiculous, but I love carrying plants on a plane because it is such a conversation starter. They're like, what in the world do you have in your bag? And, you know, I always try to have something a little funky to really talk to them about gardening and because I think everyone should grow something, whether they're a true gardener or not. I think everyone can benefit from growing something. This is this is Gail. I've I've done both. I've packed them in my suitcase and I have carried them on. And I think that my plants have been happier being carried on. Okay. Um, and and but this last time I had um, a really heavy house plant, and um, I just was kind of concerned about taking the dirt out. For one thing, I wasn't sure what I would do with the with the soil. And the other thing was, so I just wrapped it up, and oh, by the way, I brought two or three trash bags, plastic trash bags, to wrap everything around so my clothes are safe. And then I packed them up, and, you know, my suitcase was so jammed that nothing moved, but it smelled delicious because there was a... There was a lavender in there, too. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> See, these are the secret things that the garden bloggers are doing that you don't find out until you're at the fling. And I, I about fell well, over. I'm buying these begonias. And there was somebody from Texas who was like, oh, no. I mean, she was buying begonias like just a, a drunken gardener. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, I don't want the clay pot. She had the lady take them out of the clay pot. She's like, I just want them in a plastic pot. She goes, when I get back to my hotel. I'm shaking all the dirt off. I'm wrapping the roots in newspaper. Then I wrap that in plastic. Then they're going in the shoebox and then they're coming home to Texas with me. I could not believe it. I was totally floored. 
green babies, they're coming home with us. Well, uh, first <laughs> up, uh, we have to get going on day three here. So let's talk about okay. the wonderful day three. I could not be with you on day three because I was actually doing my own garden tour up in Maple Grove. So I had people coming to my house. Oh, but, really? Yeah. Oh. Um, too bad we couldn't have been two places at I once. know. Too bad. I, I, was, I was like, dang, I, I wish those guys could have come. It would have been fun. So, well, first up, and I was so happy to see it on the itinerary as someone who lives in Minnesota, was Como Park, which is a fantastic place to bring the families. And what you guys went to see were two things. First was the Japanese garden and then the conservatory. Let's talk about the Charlotte Partridge Ordway Japanese garden, and then we'll discuss the conservatory. Just as a little bit of an intro, the Japanese garden is a living symbol of peace and friendship that exists between the city of St. Paul and its sister city, Nagasaki, Japan. And how this garden came to be was that a landscape designer in Nagasaki, his name is Masami Matsuda, designed the garden according to Japanese design principles, but using plants that are hardy in Minnesota Zone 4B. So it's an amazing event. One of the things that they do um, at the conservatory that I will be going to this year is the Japanese Lantern Lighting Festival that takes place this year on August 21st. And I've seen pictures, and I guess the line is out the door, that people go crazy for this. And if you're serious about going, you need to get there early. So I, we have a plan, and we're going to do it, uh, the kids and myself. Uh, we're going to make this happen this year. It's going to be a highlight. But the garden bloggers at the Fling had the chance to tour the garden with horticulturist Tina Dombrowski and I love the Japanese garden. I've been to it a couple of times and I am so glad that you guys got a chance to see it. Julie, I'd love to hear your thoughts and then have everyone else follow. What'd you guys think? I have to tell you, this is, I was such a weird little kid that when I was nine years old, I tried to make my own miniature Japanese garden. I was obsessed with Japan. I had, I read this book called Miss Happiness and Miss Flower. And it was about these two Japanese dolls and this little girl who received them. And she was an orphan and in a different city. And she felt this connection with these Japanese dolls because they were not in their homeland either. So she made them a home. She built a Japanese dollhouse, made a Japanese garden, learned all the different cultural differences between Japan and England. And I swear, it affected me so much. So my dad built me a Japanese dollhouse. I learned everything I could about Japanese culture. You know, it's nine years old. So for me, Japanese gardens are just, I don't know what to say. When I walk into one, I just have this feeling of serenity. The garden was so beautiful. But we were running through it. That was the only problem. Our deadlines were a little tight during the day to try to see everything on our plane. And I found myself like rushing through the garden with my camera in hand trying to take pictures. And then I had to step back and say, Phew, okay, I'm not doing this right. I need to just get into my you know, inner zen and just really enjoy it. And once I, I did that and finally just slowed down and looked around, it was beautiful. I mean, the tea house was lovely. I walked back there. It wasn't open, but just the zigzag path throughout the garden, very, very beautiful. Hey, Julie, uh, really quickly, tell me the name of that book again, the book that inspired you when you were nine. The book um, is called Miss Happiness and Miss Flower. It's a children's book, like, you know, like okay. probably. And uh, the author was Rumor Godden, G-O-D-D-E-N. Okay. okay, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And then uh, can you just really quickly talk, ironically, talk about the time frame? Because when you are at 
And when you are participating in a garden blogger fling, you are seeing such a volume of gardens. We don't just kind yeah. of linger about here. It's it's get down to business, see the gardens, uh, go to things that you want to go to, and get the pictures, right? Yeah, that was. I think that was probably the only thing that in Flings Pass, I think we may have had a little bit more time, and there were so many exceptional gardens in Minnesota that the organizers put together this fabulous itinerary for us. But then, you know, like in the Japanese garden where you really, to enjoy it, you really should have quiet time and not feel rushed. You do. You find yourself kind of sprinting through to make sure you get back on the bus on time. I mean, there was one garden I was in that people were yelling from the bridge, Julie, get on the bus, we're leaving. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, they're going to leave me here. So, you know, you, and there were some other gardens where we did get to spend more time. You just, you know, you have yeah. to, it's that balance that you have to find there. Um, but I thought the Japanese garden was, was fabulous, as with all Japanese gardens. It wasn't so much about the plants, but about the structure. Um, mm-hmm. Lovely with the water feature and the bridge and very well designed, a very peaceful, like Julie said, a contemplative space with water and stone. And um, it, w- it was really lovely. This is Gail. I, I made a decision not to go, and I'm really sorry I didn't go see the Japanese garden, but I stayed in the conservatory. So it's wonderful to hear, you know, that, that there's so much more to see there that the next time I go to Minneapolis, I have friends there, I will make sure I'll go back. I love the conservatory. I My favorite part of the conservatory, this is Diana, was um, the sunken garden, which they change out regularly. I lived in Minnesota from 88 to 92, and one of my favorite pictures uh, of my son, who was four at the time, is standing in front of uh, the sunken garden full of tulips early in the spring, long before the snow of Minnesota had uh, receded. And so you go in the conservatory early in the spring, and they have stunning uh, bulbs. Uh, on display there so that you can, you know, as a gardener, you're ready for winter to be over and for, for spring to come. And, and the Como Park Conservatory makes that possible so much earlier than it's possible in the it sounds wonderful. This is Helen, and I agree that those of us who have to live with long winters uh, <laughs> really appreciate the beautiful indoor fantasy land that any conservatory offers during the, the, the cold part of the year. And I, too, made the decision not to have a look at the Japanese garden, simply because um, I didn't feel I had enough time to do it justice. So I went out and had a look at the water lilies. Your post, Helen, about the water lilies was stunning. Your photographs are beautiful. I hope everybody goes to look at your your blog post about them because you just captured so many different beautiful photos of those lilies. And it made me, you know... We had lots of choices, so we all got to pick where we wanted to spend our time. And it yeah, made me good. it yeah. made me regret I hadn't spent more time with the water lilies, but then I got to see it through your eyes. So I kind of got the best yeah. of both worlds. I agree with what Diana said, Helen. Your photos were stunning. And and you know, you were shooting we were shooting that day in really bright light and, mm-hmm. and it was just incredible for you to be able to Capture those beautiful, and and I do remember there was a bit of wind. We had to fix some of them in post, as they say. Ah, 
the life was very challenging. We often see gardens not at an ideal time. You know, we're, we're sort of happy as organizers when the sun is shining, but as photographers, <laughs> we wish for cloud cover. Yeah. You know? It was a beautiful day. And for yeah. the people who live here, uh, they know that that weekend is traditionally one of two extremes. It's either so hot, you can't stand it outside and very, very muggy, or it's stormy. So the fact that we had mm-hmm. such a fantastic day, all all three days, actually, that Mother Nature mm-hmm. cooperated, it was just amazing to me because I was a little concerned um, about that weekend. It just has a kind of a tough rap mm-hmm. to beat. But uh, the conservatory and I think your points on uh, some of you not going to the gardens and some of you staying in the conservatory also is a great tip for people who are considering going to a fling in that you do have some choice. If you're in an area and you want to explore, you know, one aspect a little bit more while the group goes on, there are times during the tour when you can pick and choose kind of what works for you. The conservatory in particular, I think people find fascinating that it's over a hundred years old. I think when you look at it, they've taken such good care of it that it's hard to believe it's a century old already. Um, And it is actually part of our National Register of Historic Places. It was added in 1974. But it has so many different aspects to it that people can explore. Everything from a bonsai gallery to a butterfly garden and then a fern room, which I you know, makes me want to pass out. Who wouldn't want a fern room? Can you imagine how that, uh, the smell in that room? And then uh, an orchid house. And then, of course, the beautiful palm dome, which I know that you saw with the huge ceiling fans above. And then the sunken garden. So would you ladies like to comment just a little bit more on the conservatory end of the experience? The sunken garden was, this is Helen, a an absolutely spectacular spot for our group shot. And trying to find the distinctive group shot area and herding cats, as we say, into the shot so that, first of all, you know, you get 60 or 70 or 80 people to look good in one picture. And also you've got a distinctive setting that's a memorable reminder of what the fling was all about. Uh, it's, it's challenging, but um, anyway, it was it was great, and we and uh, the first for 2016, we had a naked lady in our picture. <laughs> <laughs> in a you know, so that's good. In the sunken garden, I don't know who she is. Who is that lady standing in the pond? Well, what what, uh, what Helen is talking about is the group picture was taken, and then there was the statue, right, of this naked yeah. gal. And um, I don't know much about it, but I will see if I can find out the backstory on yeah. her. On our uh, streaker here. Yeah, it was not a flinger. It wasn't a flinger deciding no. to lose her clothes or anything. No, no, no. appropriate. <laughs> this is Gail, and I want to know if anybody spent much time looking at the bonsai gallery because I thought those trees were fabulous. They were. They were. They were. They were. Yeah. 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 Aren't these amazing? I didn't take the time to read. I just, again, because it was a speed trip <laughs> through there. But I remember just going through and looking at the trunks on the trees and just thinking, oh, my gosh. This yeah. is, you know, look at this. And then someone said, you know, this one isn't as old as you think, just a couple of years. And I thought it was much older than that. They just look ancient and beautiful. Yeah. There was one pine tree that was silhouetted against the rest of the gardens. And on one side, all the bark had been kind of stripped off. 
Yeah, it looks really ancient. And to think, we don't have to have perfection in our garden. And that's one sort of wonderful thing about looking at, uh, well, Eastern philosophy when it comes to gardens, that wabi-sabi, you know, beauty and imperfection thing is something we need to embrace a little more because I certainly have a lot of imperfections in my garden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next stop on the tour, ladies, was Marge Hall's home garden. And you guys are so lucky because Marge is the Dean of Garden Writers in St. Paul. And she happens to live on Summit Avenue, which is one of the most grand and historic streets in Minnesota. It's the equivalent would be Prairie Avenue in Chicago or Euclid Avenue in Cleveland or Fifth Avenue in New York City. It is a beautiful, beautiful street to drive up and down basically all throughout the year from Christmas all the way through to the summer. In fact, the governor's mansion is just two blocks away from Marge's home. So I'm, I'm, I was so jealous that you got to go see this garden and I missed it. I'm going to have to contact her and see if I can uh, sneak over and take a peek. But what did you think of this garden? Helen, why don't you start us off? Oh, well, that's probably good to start with me because I'm a shade gardener. So I'm always looking for ideas to either use myself or do presentations about or write about. Uh, She had some interesting ideas about shade. It's fascinating to me. I guess I had a little light bulb flash. How much of shade gardening actually happens on the margins between light and shade? There are some things you can do sort of at the edges of shade. That means you don't have to completely relegate yourself to only shade plants. But you have some, those, those kind of margins nicely defined where you can have the you know, more sun requiring plants on one side and more shade loving or shade-tolerant plants on the other side. So that was fascinating. And she had a great use of foliage and texture and shape and color, which is often what you have to depend on in a shady garden. It tends not to be the most flowery-type garden. And also great layering of different levels of plants within that lovely little shady walk um, to the left of the house that takes you from the front garden into the back garden. I don't know how many... Did we all go through there, or was it just me? I went through very slowly, taking very low-light pictures. So when I was looking at my pictures, many of them were, you know, out of focus, out of focus, out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> she had, this is Gail, she had a really elegant and wonderful con- uh, garden room or conservatory that was just delightful. And did you get to go inside it, Gail? Yes, yes, yes. We opened that door, Helen. Did you not open that door? It was beautiful. I am, I am obviously the person who is either lingering around taking too many photographs, or in the bathroom. Yeah, for Helen. I I noticed it actually in a picture that I took, and it was. I could see it through, and that's one of the things I always regret about the fling or any garden tour I'm on. I always say to myself, as I look at certain shots, oh, I wish I could go back and retake that. Helen, this is Gail. I loved what you had to say about shade gardens and gardening on the edge, and, because that's really how I have to garden. I have, as much as I'm drawn towards sun-loving plants, I have to really deal with um, choosing plants that can take part shade and part sun so they're not lying down on the job trying to find their sun. But I always managed to find the sunny spots in a garden, and I went behind her house in the alley where she had 
there was a sunny garden back there, and it was, did you make yes. it back there, too? I did, yep. This is Helen. I actually have missed a bus on the garden tour. It was very embarrassing. Uh, I, well, and one of the things I, that I think is in, is interesting that you're not prepared for if it's your first fling is how many other people are in these small spaces. And sometimes it's extremely yeah. challenging to take a picture when there are 60 yeah. other people in this garden. So you're getting, you know, hands and, and feet and arms and other people and in the shots. <laughs> yeah, so you get all kinds yeah. of, you know, crazy pictures. And sometimes that's just a neat picture, too, when you're taking a big picture. And then there's so many people in the garden. That's kind of a cool picture, too. But uh, this garden, was this a challenging location to shoot for that reason? This is Diana. You always have that to deal with, but people are very respectful of each other, you know, and and if you're trying to get a long shot and someone's walking through your space, you just wait patiently or sometimes they'll say, oh, here, let me move out of your way. And and the, the key is just to, you know, mill around in all different parts of the garden. I always tell people... Um, I like to adopt the Disneyland approach, which is um, when the park opens, go straight to the back for the big e-ticket rides and get there first ah. instead of starting <laughs> in the front of the park. And I think, I think every garden blogger has some little trick like that where they're going to go off, skip on ahead a little bit so that they can try to get a little space. But when I get back, the posts that I love the most are those where people did include the people in their pictures. Because it's nice to see, oh, look, and I, I, you know, oh, yeah, I met this girl there. This was her first year blogging, and we had such a nice time. It just jogs your memory about not just the beautiful spaces, but the beautiful people that you meet and sharing that experience with them. So at the time, it can be a little challenging finding your perfect shot, but when it's all said and done, it's wonderful to have those, those memories, not just the blooms, but the beautiful people captured as well. This is Helen, and I have uh, three strategies when it comes to people in my pictures. There are the pictures I can't help taking with people in them, and that is often I just try and make them look as artsy as possible. And then there are pictures I take of people specifically on purpose, and I've got some beautiful portraits over the years of people in the garden. And those are wonderful memories and smiling faces and whatever. And then there are the ones where I just stand there either waiting for people to move out of the picture with the picture framed and quick smile when they move, or I just as uh, I think Diana said, get in first or come out last or mm-hmm. zig when everyone else zags. So that's, <laughs> that's how I approach those pictures. And my, my strategy, this is Julie, is always to try to be the last one on the bus because once everyone's herded back to the bus, then you can get some of those shots you might need for presentations or things where you don't want so many people in your photos where you're trying to really get something specific that you need to use in a post or an article or whatever it may be. Pam Pennick just wrote a, a great little blog post about uh, Marge's garden. And one of the things that she featured in her post uh, that is so captivating is the beautiful sun porch. Did you ladies get a chance to see inside the sun porch? I don't remember. I'm looking. <laughs> oh, like, no. What? Say what? This is, uh, tell them again, uh, this is the great thing, I think, about reading everyone else's posts after the, after the flame. There's always a little area that you didn't get to see. And it's like having about 60 pairs of eyes. 
Yeah. You were there, you experienced the space, and someone noticed something off to the left that you didn't see, and you think, wow, that's a really cool idea. Or, you know, that's beautiful. Um, you know, thanks for sharing that. That's really kind of cool. And then there are those things that you regret not saying, of course, many times. But the value of not just taking a garden tour with a bunch of strangers, but taking a garden tour with a bunch of people who afterwards want to share all their pictures. And you're really interesting because you were there too. You're absolutely right, Helen. You know, when I had my own garden tour on Sunday while you guys were seeing uh, all these fabulous gardens, I was so struck by what people were commenting on because the things that I love about my garden were not some of the things that people were going crazy for. They were going, you know, crazy for things that I kind of don't even think about anymore. And so it was really interesting. And I think when you've got so many people with so many personal preferences when it comes to gardening, and then they take their pictures and they're sharing, you know, what was inspiring to them, you really see the full range of why these gardens have appeal to so many people. In this particular garden, I thought Pam did a great job of taking a picture of the house, which sometimes we can forget because we're so focused on the flowers or the garden itself, we're forgetting to take a picture of the home that is part of the garden. And I thought Marge's garden, uh, from the looks of it, was really nicely married to the garden because the home is a a two-door house and then she's got that beautiful uh, sun porch on the back with all of the windows and, and looks like tons of plant material all around the house. Yes, that's true. I, I did take a picture of the plant garden with Helen. I keep forgetting to say who I am. It had that fantastic cast iron fence around the edges. And yes, it was very unified and that had a very perfect lawn. Very, very attractive picture. And I also loved her back gate with that wonderful succulent breed. And then yeah, when I took a picture of that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I did too. <laughs> well, ladies, another private garden that was next on the list uh, that you got to see is a real treat because it was named one of the five best gardens in the Twin Cities. And it's the Garden of Lee and Jerry Shannon. And I wanted to read to you an excerpt about this garden that was featured in the Star Tribune Uh, last year, I believe. And it said, more than 40 years ago, this couple inherited some backyard perennial beds and weren't quite sure what was a weed and what was a coneflower. This garden has been featured in countless garden tours and even had a brief starring role on a 1990s HGTV show, which I had no idea. Cited behind their formal garden, there is a two-third acre plant haven featuring a rock garden, a formal garden, a gazebo, and an impressive conifer collection. And Jerry has said of his garden, he's got uh, just a ton of fantastic quotes if you start to research these guys. And he said, I'm not that interested in plants that are a dime a dozen. I want what no one else has. I like to call it a collector's garden. We collect plants like people collect antiques and stamps. And after the Shannons put their gardens to bed each fall, they focus their energy on garden research. So these guys are really gardening year-round and trying to grow their knowledge about horticulture, which I think is so interesting. And they pour through books and journals at the University of Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. And so they're not uh, looking online. They're actually going to the Arboretum Library and doing a lot of hands-on research there. 
Jerry said, I'd like to look up gardens from around the world and see what's growing in zone four to find plants that would be winter hardy here. And that is how he found his Finnish hybrid rhododendron that was developed at the University of Helsinki. I'm sure that probably was not a standout uh, plant to you guys because, of course, by the time we're going through in July, that baby has already bloomed and and is done, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the big display. But it's just one example of probably all the unique things that he's doing with plant varieties in his garden that we may miss, you know, as uh, garden bloggers taking this tour. Gail, what were your impressions of this special garden? You know, that one of the interesting things is this is probably the one garden I took the least photos of. And because I just wanted to experience it, there was so much going on. And I just, sometimes I just take a lot of photos and I don't stop and appreciate what's really there. So I just let myself walk through it. And I almost didn't make it back because I was so struck by his alpine plantings in the front, which I thought were hypertopha. I'm saying, I always say that wrong. And they turned out to be styrofoam pots that I just stood there for a while staring at them. And Helen, I really thank you for finding out how to make them for us and posting that. I just enjoyed walking around this garden and looking what you could do in such a tight space. It was a charming garden. I agree, Gail. And this is Helen. And I was, as you know, already taken with the troughs in the front. I'm fascinated by how relatively easy they were to make. So I put a post on them. A how-to post on Toronto Gardens was one of the first things I wrote about, actually, those crazy fish troughs. What I loved about the garden was the diversity of growing environments they had created. I'm going to be doing a post very shortly on their couple of scree gardens. You think of them as rock gardens, but they're really a combination of gravel and stone. As I was leaving, I heard someone say, and they do all the maintenance themselves. And look at this couple who are advancing in years, let's put it that way, and thinking, wow, how much work must they have to do in order to do this? They have crops that they have to plant and move. They have annuals in pots. They have some amazing perennial planting, some of which obviously are tall. They've got that little boxwood parterre kind of in the center. I think, wow, what a lot of work. But I'm doing a little research on at Scree Gardens, it became clear that these are actually, to a certain degree, a labor-saving device. So I thought that was quite fascinating. When, As we were leaving, I, whenever there's the homeowner in the garden, I always take the time to thank them for sharing their garden with us. And they said, well, you know, we're both retired educators, and we're always happy, you know, to help educate other gardeners. Mm. And that was that was definitely an education for me because I saw something, I got curious about it, I did research after I came home, and I learned two things I didn't know before. I loved how they layered everything in that garden so beautifully. Their beds were really deep, and they were they were layered with a, a wonderful mix. I mean, you could tell that they're plant collectors, but there were layers yeah. and layers of uh, texture and color and form. They had lots and lots of evergreen, all different kinds of evergreen shrubs, and then they had perennials that came. and And even though we were there at one specific point in time, you could tell from looking at those gardens that there was something interesting going on in that garden. You know, every month yeah. of the year. 
Um, exactly. It was a true gardener's garden, and so you know that they've left things there that will look beautiful in terms of structure in the snow and habitat for wildlife. Um, we'll, we'll find a, a happy home there then, too. So that's what I really, really loved about that garden. Yes, I agree. And the, the fact that, for example, if they had a blank spot, people tend to get a little bent out of shape about annuals. In a perennial garden, but in their case, they had these big pots of coleus and other foliage plants that they just stuck in blank spots, and they made these beautiful arrangements so that when one area sort of died back, as Gail said, perhaps something was going on there on another part of the season, instead they had a great foliage picture with a fantastic color all handled with annuals that they could move around in pots. And I think that's a really great strategy for a lot of gardeners that uh, tends to be kind of downplayed. Well, I'll, I'll say something, Helena. I think that, just as an aside, I like using annuals. I mostly plant native plants, but I have a lot of really shallow soil, and I'll pop a container there filled with annuals, especially coleuses that also, when I let them go to seed and flower, then I can feed the bees. So I love that using um, mm -hmm. annuals in a garden. I think they're really important. Did, did you notice their uh, green roof on their shed? Oh, yeah, I yeah. remember that now. I think I, took, I think I took a photo of that. Yeah, it was a cute shed, and I love the fact that they painted the ladder blue. Aww. Did you see the gate, like the handmade gate that had the morning glory vine in metal? No. I have a picture of that. One of the gates to the back had metal like sculpture all along the wrought iron and it was uh, the vine and leaves and little morning glory flowers on it. That's oh, cool. so beautiful. There were there were lots of little touches in that garden that were tucked here and there, a little bit of art, a little bit of decor that you could have just spent a whole day there and not seen it all. They did a wonderful job. Well, yes, it was a the, lovely garden. Yes, yeah. and as the pictures are rolling in, you can see where the uh, all the conifers that they have on their property are giving structure to that garden, and that I think kind of helps yeah. make that space seem, you know, less cumbersome to try to deal with. It's an L-shaped lot, you know, what they're gardening on, and these uh, containers that they're using uh, that were, you know, so amazing to see are basically styrofoam coolers that they right. spray paint and I had mm -hmm. some oh it was D Nash of Red Dirt Rambling one of the garden bloggers had posted a picture about these uh, garden troughs uh, that they're planting in because by the time they spray paint them and texturize them with heat guns they look like they're stone planters they, they look yeah. like they would weigh, you know, a ton. Yeah. And in reality, they are about the lightest thing you could possibly plant in. Well, I had posted mm -hmm. this. I took Dee's post and I reposted it on my page. And one of my second or third cousins, eight times removed, what have you, uh, somebody that I met on Ancestry.com said, oh, I have that. She gardens in Chaska, Minnesota. And she said, well, I bought that at a garden supply store. And she said, I have mine and mine are 
years old. And she goes, they hold up great. She put uh, drain holes in the bottom and she absolutely loves those planters. So that's something mm-hmm. I think people were very taken by once they found out what that material was. And her suggestion was to get in touch with some of the veterinary clinics because apparently some of the things that they get in terms of supplies comes in those coolers and then they just get rid of them. So if you have yep. a veterinary supper nearby, you can ask them, hey, do you have these coolers? Could I you know, get some from you? Uh, and her comment was that uh, the color on those coolers, you know, when I think of a styrofoam cooler, I think of white. Uh, but she said a lot mm-hmm. of them come already gray. So that kind of helps, oh. too, you know, just for adding the color and the texture to them. But uh, they were great. I loved your post about it. I loved her post about it. And it's something I want to give a whirl and see if I can uh, make one and and how they go. But yeah, that particular garden, that was a a definite highlight there. Well, next up was lunch at Bailey's Display Garden. You guys were fortunate enough to meet the folks behind Easy Elegance Roses, First Edition Shrubs and Perennials, and of course, the Endless Summer Hydrangeas, which who can resist? I mean, you know, myself, I was uh, a little disappointed in myself this year because I bought two more. I'm going, you have no business buying any more Endless Summer Hydrangeas. Hydrangeas, but when you see them and they're so beautiful, it's hard to it's hard to stop yourself. But the Bailey family has been growing and selling plants in Minnesota for over three generations, and you guys got to enjoy lunch in their lovely display garden in Cottage Grove. And I've always wanted to see it, and of course, I missed it yet again. So, ladies, what was it like? It was fascinating to see the trials there, producing new and innovative varieties of plants. Um, the hydrangeas, as you said, were beautiful, but we really can't grow them in Austin. They sort of melt uh, okay. in the heat and humidity here. So they're not a very common plant in the garden here. I've, I've never planted them myself, and I've never planted them for clients. And you see them in Dallas, uh, but that's about four hours north of us. So it's always exciting to see them with new varieties of things. I'm, I'm intrigued by what new varieties they develop that can maybe tolerate our heat and humidity in a, in a zone eight garden. You know, we need, we sometimes need tougher plants from the heat end of the spectrum, as opposed to you all up north from, you know, the, the cold tolerance. So I, I took a lot of pictures in that garden of particular plant varieties and then their plant tags so that I can get with my wholesaler here and say, so, what do you know about this, and can we grow it and do well in our zone eight gardens down here? So that was fascinating for me. Yeah, tell them here. I have the kind of opposite problem being in USDA zone five. Many times I've gone to a playing or garden writer event, and it's been in a hot climate. So I see amazing plants that I can't grow <laughs> or can't be growing in Toronto except in a conservatory. It doesn't make the gardens any less interesting. As a matter of fact, very often I set myself a little creative challenge that think, okay, how could I create this impact using plants that I can actually grow? So that's kind of fun. But it was really interesting to see a display garden, nicely done, and really we appreciated that lunch. That was like the perfect fling lunch to me. Mwah. I, I just want to say one thing, though. I wish I wish that garden centers focused a little more in their display gardens on what could be grown in shade. 
that's my only, my only, my little wish list, because this was a very sunny space. And there were some beautiful plants like a deer villa there, a really variegated deer villa, which is usually a shade plant. And I asked one of the horticulturists whether they, you know, whether it could be grown in shade. And they said, no, probably not. I took a lot of pictures of this garden because I thought it was really nicely done. And they had an attractive grouping of native plants, a lot of flocks that it was really fun to look at. And I really liked the contrast in the in the shrubs with the cotinus and the and some of the other plants with the gorgeous color differences between the pops of burgundy and then you have you know the lime colored foliage. It was just really pretty and very nicely done. They did a wonderful job. After this stop, you headed east to Afton to see Squire House Gardens, and this is a privately owned garden shop in tiny Afton, and it's located in an old house with a formal and casual gardens around it. Squire House specializes in unusual plants and accessories for home and garden, and it's owned by designer Martin Stern, who describes his style as English, but not formal. The paths in the garden intersect at right angles, and there's a vegetable garden that demonstrates ideas on trellising. Martin is a master at placing art and structures in the garden. Diana, what did you think of this stop? I love this stop. This Squire House Garden combined my two favorite things, gardening and design with shopping. (laughs) 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 The, The shop was lovely. Um, lots and lots of wonderful garden and home uh, decor and wonderful little things that you could set about. You know, if you think decor, furniture, art, they're all part of a beautiful, cohesive garden design. You know, I'm a plant collector, but I also am very focused on the actual design component of these gardens. And as Helen was saying before, the thing that you take with you to these springs is you may not be able to plant certain plants that you see in your garden, but with the right colors, the right combinations and textures, and with the right decor, you can create any style of garden. And so this this garden had a little bit of a formal sense to it. It was a little a little whimsical in places. Um, each garden room was unique, uh, with lots of delicate little vignettes, like statues and water features. I especially liked the the main courtyard that had lily pads and a small fountain in the middle with concrete statues all around. You know, in a in a semi formal style. It was kind of a, where where cottage intersects with formal. It it was delightful, and they treated us so nicely. They provided beverages for us, and they had cookies for us, and then they did a raffle, and I actually won uh, one of the two prizes that they gave away. What'd you win? Basket with. I won um, a basket with some soap and a candle and some lip balm and a nail brush, which every gardener needs. Wow. Um, so, it, and it was very, it was a very serene space. The design that he brought into that space was very calming. And so even though it was hot after lunch and we were, you know, as you get after lunch, a little tired, it's a little bit of a drive out to Afton. But this garden was refreshing and beautiful and kind of got me right back in the fling mood. Yeah, it looks almost otherworldly in pictures. It doesn't It doesn't look at all like you're in Minnesota. It looks almost English, I would say. It does. It has, it has a very, you know, the whole garden and the, the sculpture, the fountain, all of it 
sort of has this aged patina. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a, a, a mature garden in there, you just, it kind of took you back in time. It was lovely. What, this is Gail. What I liked about it was that it, it, he, you know, he says he describes his style as English, but not formal. And I felt like it was comfortable and yes. inviting. And I wanted to be there and I wanted to walk around and I appreciate that. My style is very informal. So be, but being there, it was just so comfortable. I kept walking around and finding something else to look at that was just as adorable and sweet. There were a lot of green places in his garden, but it wasn't just green. It just looked good. And maybe that's that sort of English style he has. He just knew how the, the, the right angles worked with it. It was very nice. Yep. It's Helen here, considering the space was relatively contained space, they had a lot of diversity in the garden. And I, I like that juxtaposition of the formal space. Uh, even though the formal, it wasn't rigidly formal, as Gail, I think you just said, the, it was a comfortable, comfortable space. And then it was. Within a stone throw is that more wild shade garden with the kind of wands of Kia kind of wafting or reaching for the light. And so, again, being a shady gardener, I, I spent a lot of time kind of looking to see what plants were there and how they were combined and, and that kind of thing. And I did go into the shop. But again, coming from Canada, this is the challenge coming to the flames. There are People love being my roommate because I'm always giving away things I can't bring back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just looking at one one picture of the space that is just this kind of, remember what I was talking about, those margins between sun and shade? And looking from underneath, I think, an archway down the gravel walk towards the house. And he's placed two very bright yellow hostas right there. So you get the, the light shining through these wonderful yellow leaves, and it's like an, a sunny anchor for this shady space. That it's almost like a, it's bright as a, a light in that, in that area. It's it's a, a, Diana, I see exactly the picture you're talking about. You're working with your photos. I'm pulling up this out of my memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, would it surprise you guys well, to know that the home on that property is from 1875? Oh, wow. Because from yeah. pictures, it looks so well maintained and cared for. And yeah. uh, But the other thing I was just looking as you guys were chatting about Martin Stern, co-owner of uh, Squire House Gardens, is that he lived in southern England in 1987. And during that time, he studied with world-renowned garden designer and writer John Brooks. So he had a little oh. formal training uh, that that's your that's probably oh, what I guess, picking up on. I guess so. Yeah, a couple of years ago, John Brooks came to Canada, and I took a course with him as well. What was that like? It was pretty amazing, as a matter of fact. I mean, I have a you know garden design certificate, and we studied things uh, like uh, space planning, but it didn't really click with me until I sat down in John's course. And he said, don't be so rigid. Have fun with it. Think of it as an abstract painting. And that made light bulbs go up in my head. And I've been a different designer ever since. So 
it's hard to communicate until you actually see the difference between the befores and afters. And I have been for a long time meaning to post about that whole experience. An interesting guy and full of all kinds of opinions. <laughs> Let's tell it. Yeah, Helen, I hope you write about that. I think that would be a really good post. Yes, one day. <laughs> yeah, and it would be great to do a piece on Squire House and then link it to your experience with John Brooks since there's like one degree of separation here. Anyway, the designs at Squire House that Martin had created, I'm sure, were very influenced by John Brooks's main philosophy, which is very simple. And the simple, simple philosophy is find some aspect of the architecture of the home and tie the garden to it. That's kind of the key message. And I think that's kind of basic. You know, sometimes when uh, you, Jennifer, were talking about the Marge's garden and how the house was tied to the garden. And I think this is sometimes we forget that the garden can sometimes be divorced like, if the garden is the garden, and the house is the house, and never the train shall meet. Well, in fact, the house has to sit on the landscape. So that is a, it's really important to be able to tie the two together. Such a great point. But it also brings to mind my own house that I think of where it's so easy to design the front. There's a there's a porch there. Well, of course, you're going to have a garden in front of the porch. You can almost identify the perennial garden and what that would look like when I say put the perennial garden, you know, in front of the house. But the areas of the house that I struggle with are those odd and obscure places. So like it's behind the garage or on the side of the house, like toward the back. How do you how do you garden in those? spaces. So it's always fascinating to me when you're talking to a designer and it's so obvious to them. Well, of course, you're going to tie the two together or you're going to pick up on this small little detail. But when you're in that space, you can have such a design block about what to do here. How do I pull the front to the back? How do I combine those two? So I'm always fascinated to hear what they do and how they do it. And and especially if they're going to surround the house, which it which it seems like from pictures is what's happened here with, with Squire House. So. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that they've created a beautiful space. And like many of the gardens that we have seen on the plane, this is one I would love to have spent more time with. As a matter of fact, I was getting impatient as he was giving his presentation at the beginning. I wanted to get into the garden. Well, and I'm a shopper, I think they were- <laughs> so I'd love to shop there. I'm going to have to make a visit and, and see what they have. It looks like they've got some great accessories. Um, they had some really beautiful birdhouses that I wanted to take home, but there was no way. They were so delicate and had so many little pieces of, of moss and twigs on them. I thought they would just fall apart on the travel home, but they were really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I got some pictures from some of the wonderful stuff in the shop. I'll be putting that in my post when I get when I get to Squire House. I still. I still have quite a few posts to do. So, Well, hopefully we've done it justice with our conversation here. And last but not least, certainly not least, uh, from the feedback that I've heard from so many of you, uh, the final stop on the fling was actually in Wisconsin, just across the border, at Wouterina de Rod Mosaic Sculpture Park and Garden. And the fling coordinators had written on the itinerary that they had maybe saved the best for last. But this is a 
private garden and sculpture park that is noted as being a unique marvel in Midwest gardening. There are over a hundred mosaic sculptures that Wouterina has created and displayed in her expansive garden in Beldenville, Wisconsin. And the Star Tribune had written an article about her last summer, and they wrote, Her story is as colorful as her creations. She grew up on her parents' coffee plantation in the East Indian island of Java, where she absorbed the myths and legends that infuse her work today. And apparently there's a flying mermaid mosaic in her garden. And even her name has an exotic backstory. And I thought this particular story was so touching. Her parents, both World War II concentration camp survivors, were separated during their confinement. They didn't think they'd ever see each other again, but they were reunited after the war. And when their daughter was born, not long after that, they united their names, which was Wouter, which is Dutch for Walter, and Rena. And as a child, she hated her long name, Wouterina, and she started calling herself Rihanna. And now that her parents have passed away, she has resumed having herself referred to as Wouterina. And I thought it was a beautiful story. Well, Helen, uh, I know in particular that That's you were, Yeah, I mean, I know in particular that you were very taken with this garden. I saw your post on this garden in on your blog, Toronto Gardens. Why don't you start us off with the, the discussion around this final garden in the 2016 Garden Bloggers Fling? Jennifer, we were so blessed to have so much time to spend on this garden. I took three times as many pictures in this garden as I did in any other garden space, more than three times in some cases. I came home from Minneapolis with nearly 1,500 pictures, and over 200 of them were from this one garden alone. So I was impressed with her creativity, you know, when people do things that are totally unexpected, you know, in her case, creating these frameworks of a wire mesh, slathering on top her own recipe of cement, using everything from cut glass to found objects as her her mosaic material, and then topping it in some cases, I, I might not have gotten the whole story with an adobe mix that... You've got these crazy mythical shapes and curving benches and mermaids and all kinds of wacky things. The sculptures in themselves were wonderful, but also just her ideas within a garden space itself. For instance, she had one little vegetable garden in the back, and the fencing along one side was a couple, I think, of deconstructed farm windmills set in this kind of wacky Dr. Seuss-style edging. The, the metal and the, in the veins on the windmill pieces were starting to weather, and over this was spilling, overspilling these beautiful poppies. It was just, I, I just stood there and I took about 15 pictures of that alone. It really, really inventive, and I was totally in- impressed with the, you know, how many times bottle caps fit into either her her designs or her, uh, she made a chandelier or a light cover out of linked bottle caps. I mean, you know, both my parents were artists. They met at art school. Um, I was conceived at art school. And so my sister is a graphic designer. And so Art and that kind of visual expression has always been a part of my life that I've been exposed to. And so 
I just marvel at the way people think of things, and then not only think of things, but execute them. And that is, in addition to anything else, what was so impressive about Rihanna. I won't even try and pronounce her her longer name. I think it's Vuterina, but uh, don't quote me on that. I had a long conversation with her because she's Dutch, and I spent four years of my childhood in the Netherlands. So it's yes. fascinating to talk to I her. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. So I think it's probably Wasserina. But just like we say Gouda, but it's really Kauda when ah. you say uh-huh. it in Dutch. So I think it's more Al than Ooh. She was such a character. I didn't get to go on her tour. I really wish I had. She's, you know, I was on her artist friends tour of the garden. And it sounds like having these individual conversations with her and hearing it from her was just wonderful. Ooh, well, back up she a little really bit, ladies. How did they how did they structure this? So they had different tours or different groups. What were the options? When we got there, this is Diana. When we got there, um she had a friend who's also an artist who took about half of the group one way through the garden and she took the other because oh, okay. you, you know, with that many people, it's hard to hear and get close enough to really see and hear everything. So I think everybody got a great tour. I was with her, and so she, as we walked through the garden, she was telling us, you know, the backstory of every sculpture, every personal piece of history that she used to create the spaces to speak to people, that her personal stories, and they were relevant, and it sort of created this magical journey in her garden. She drew so much from her life. I will probably end up doing three posts about her garden. I went through and started with the first one I have up at sharingnaturesgarden.blogspot.com. Um, but she had stories like she has two jaguar mosaic sculptures outside of one of the little buildings on the property. And she created them because there were jaguars and there was um, this mystical lore about jaguars where she grew up in Indonesia. It was just fascinating to hear her tell these little stories. And uh, she had a few sculptures that were tributes to her son, who she didn't go into great detail, but there was sort of a like an altar almost with a mother holding a bait, her, her child in a concrete statue. And that was something she, she created after almost losing her son. Oh, wow. um, and so she built this, yeah. this sort of altar to honor him and their relationship. So there were so many beautiful little vignettes in that garden um, design-wise. And then, you know, she was also a collector, so there were amazing plants. And and she was just so passionate about it all. She told us we probably got the crash course in concrete mosaic sculpture because she was telling us how to make it. Yes, she was. This is Gail. I used to do mosaic, and I have a mosaic shed in my garden that I still have all my supplies. And after touring, I I wanted so desperately to get back into mo- doing my mosaics that because I injured my hand, I couldn't. But I want to go up and take a class with her. It is, I know. I was just so inspired by her. And I said to her, you know, I've been taking uh, classes from Diane Warner Hunter, and she said, I know her. And I, and I said, the difference between you and Diane is really excellent, but... But her work is very linear, and yours is just so free. And and she said, thank you. That's the best compliment you could give me. And I just thought, that's exactly how her work is. It is just, it is so free. 
and it's just so full of emotion and and full of beauty and just full of just life. And, and I want to go back and do that again because it's really it is a fabulous hobby. <laughs> For, for her, her art, but for me, it was a really delightful hobby, and I hope to be able to get up there to take a class. I, I was the same way. I wanted to take her class. I wanted to stay there. I wanted to cancel my flight and go right back out there and take a class. I don't know where I could put big concrete sculptures like that in my garden, but I was so inspired by her. And that's one of the things that draws me to the fling year after year. No matter what part of the country it's held in, no matter what the perspective of the gardener is, whether they're a designer or a collector, or whether they're into art or whether they're into antiques or tropicals or cottage garden, you come away with this renewed sense of invigoration from seeing all these gardens and from looking at the beautiful designs and plants that people have crafted in their part of the country. You come back to your own garden with ideas and and little snippets of vignettes and designs and things. I spent the whole flight home uh, taking notes in the margins of the magazine because I didn't have a whole piece of paper. So I have lots of plans for my own garden. You draw that artistic feeling, that inspiration from the gardens in these flings. And that's, for me, the most exciting part about getting to go, yeah. aside from all of the people, the fabulous people. And you get wonderful ideas from all of the other flingers, too. I mean, everybody shares um, their successes and their failures and their ideas, and, and that's the beauty of it. You know, Diana, that makes me think of the one of the a word that I think really fits sleigh is the generosity of spirit that happens with people opening their gardens to us and then yeah. the sharing that happens afterward. It's just, I, I mean, it's just so, just talking about it again makes me feel renewed. But that generosity of, of people who are willing to let you come into their garden and tramp around. And, and the other thing is if they're not afraid to open their gardens to people to see the mistakes they've made or because no garden is perfect. It's gratifying to go into and to see and, and think, oh my gosh, they, they have a similar problem spot. Look what they've done. I can do that too. Right. It, I, but that generosity of, of, of spirit is just a hallmark, I think, of playing. Yeah. It really is sharing something so personal and lovely with us. They don't have to do it. Um, but I think anytime someone opens up their their home to a garden tour. It's a very, very special, intimate experience. It is. I agree. So much. Yeah, absolutely. One of the organizers last year, I know what a gratitude we all owe to gardeners who are willing to open the door to a bunch of strangers, have us take pictures of them, be critical, potentially, or, you know, adulatory, that's fine. Um, And, you know, they get nothing for it. They get no benefit other than the pleasure of sharing their garden and really their generosity is just as important as anything else when it comes to organizing a plane. This was really the end of the Garden Bloggers Fling, this particular garden, and it was a lovely, lovely long day, just like all the other days that you'd had. I'm so curious what your thoughts were and what it's like to be at the end of the fling when you're seeing that last garden. What is that experience like for you guys? This is Diana. It's exciting and it's a little bittersweet. You know, we we don't ever want it to end, but we do squeeze a lot in, so you're a little tired at the end of it. It's always wonderful for me to finish up, 
have a nice meal, say good, say our goodbyes, and come home and then download. I don't know. I probably had two thousand pictures and take a look at those and then relive it quietly, taking things from it. You know, seeing things that I didn't see in person sometimes, but you capture with your camera and don't even realize. The the beauty of it is that it it goes on. You know, it lives on, and that is, I think, the the consummate pleasure of blogging is that you've created a permanent record of this beautiful experience that you share with the world and that you can also go back and look to. I go often for presentations or for newspaper articles that I write, go back through my photos and use things and, you know, get stuck down in the rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, that was a gorgeous garden. Oh, and look at the next day. And and so it's, it's a permanent imprint of these beautiful gardens in your mind after each fling. And that is just a wonderful thing to have. I think, Diana, you make some really good points. And also, Helen here, that the idea of creating connections with the people. You know, there's after seven years of going to fling, there are people that I've met from knowing them only as bloggers online that I think of now as lifelong friends. And sometimes I think I spend more time with my friends through the fling than I do with my own family. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's so true. (laughs) Yeah. So it is making connections, learning from people, and then taking thoughts home that sometimes you take, it needs time to process. You know, you need to percolate on what you've seen for a while, and and as Diana said, going through all your pictures, you see things that you didn't notice before, or you make, you know, you make little ahas that help you see things in different ways that somehow in the thrill of being in the space, you haven't had time to contemplate. Anyway, that's one of the reasons, or some of the reasons why planes can be very addictive, and, (laughs) you know... Yeah, they are. Forward to the next experience. I think, uh, this is Gail, I think that Helen and Diana said, really, they summarized the end of playing beautifully. By the end of that day, you're pretty tired, and that last meal with people is bittersweet. I think Diana said that. And and then Helen said that when you go home and you begin to talk about the experiences, because my family asked me how it is, and in the first couple of days, I can, I can only say, it was it was really good. Because I'm an introvert, I have to let things percolate. I have to think about them a little bit. And then it bubbles up. Yeah. Well, garden blogging for most folks starts as a hobby. I'm so curious. How did you guys each get started blogging? I'll start. Let me start because it started with Austin. I had been thinking about blogging. Ever since I ran, I I discovered and stumbled, really stumbled upon Pam Penick's blog digging. And I so completely fell in love with that idea of blogging that I wrote a blog and I hadn't pushed the publish button until I saw that they were going to have a get-together in Austin. And so I said, you can do this, Gail. And I pushed that publish button in February and wrote to Pam a few weeks later and said, hey, could a new blogger come? And she said, why not? And so that was the process for me. And, and so for me, blogging is linked very deeply with Flink, and uh, it's really hard for me to imagine not coming to a Flink uh, or not blogging. Well, I started blogging about a year before we held the first Flink in Austin, 
And, you know, my husband read an article in the paper about people who were who were writing garden blogs, and he said, well, you should do that. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I'm first and foremost a writer, and then I became a garden designer. So I said, you know, maybe I will do that. And I got hooked on it one night and created a blog. And and then Pam uh, and I and several other awesome bloggers started meeting in person. And so, it, like Gail said, we've connected the two so that we have sort of the best of both worlds. We get the, the blog and have the social media on electronic media. Um, but we also know that once a year we get to have precious time with our friends all across the country and abroad. And I, to me, that makes the blogging experience so much richer. Yes, exactly. The thing about blogging is you often send things out into the world and wonder if anyone ever reads them. Right. <laughs> and, and having having a connection with at least, you know, at least I know my fellow bloggers are going to occasionally drop by, have little conversations. It makes it all much more rewarding. My sister and I started Toronto Gardens uh, back in 2006. As a matter of fact, I actually bought the URL for TorontoGardens.com back in 2001. That's how long I've had it. So wow, Helen. Yeah. We didn't start the blog until five years later, and we did it on Blogspot at the time. We are now using our URL. So URL, TorontoGardens.com, has been around for, what, 15 years? And yeah, it's a long time. But only, but only in reality, most recently. And we started our blog because of the death of a couple of Toronto area garden magazines. We felt we had a big city and no one was talking to it about gardening in Toronto. And we wanted to not only replace them, but we also wanted to write what we wanted to read. That's so cool, Helen. You had your URL for that long. And also, it speaks to two things. One, we really need some garden magazines, more garden magazines in the United States. But how much fun it can be writing a blog. I wanted to write about native plants and pollinators because there weren't that many people talking about it when I started writing. Now it's everyone's talking about pollinators, and I really love that. Well, you're a strong proponent of wildflowers with your Wildflower Wednesday. Yes. Thank you for saying that, Helen. I was looking through all my pictures because we did see a lot of wildflowers at various places and thinking, oh, I've got to put something together for Gail. Boy, weren't there a lot of wildflowers up there? Oh, one of the things, I don't know if it's apropos right now, but, but it is in the sense that one of the things that I've gotten from social media was I learned about a, a woman, her name is Heather Holmes, and she is uh, writes about pollinators in the Midwest. And in one of the gardens that we toured, I got to meet Heather, and it was just oh. wonderful. This, I said, oh, Heather, well, I didn't know it was her, and she didn't know it was me, and we ended up hugging, and it was really cool. Yeah, that's exciting. That was something that I had talked to Bryn Haas about because we had met so many people that are garden bloggers virtually online that, you know, when you finally get to meet them, you're like, oh my gosh, there you are. And sometimes it's hard to yeah. remember the name because you remember the, the name of the blog, you know, first. I know. And then once you get to know them as a person, then you can't remember the name of their blog. I think it's a strange kind of amnesia. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. So, and it's a lot to keep track of. So, so I, you know, I thought it was great on the name tags. They had everyone's name and then where they were from, but also the name of the blog. And my only thing now that I'm getting older is I needed everything in like a size 24 font or bigger because you could see the name very clearly, but the, all the other little information was kind of hard to read on the name tag. So I was 
always squinting, trying to see what's the name of that blog that this person is writing as you're trying to meet them and get to know them. It's hard to read them, too, because they're covered with pins. Yes. Our badge of honor. Yes. <laughs> thing is you end up having a conversation with people's chest, you know, as you're looking at their name badge. You're thinking, oh, hello, and your eyes slide down. Yes. Hello, hello. <laughs> Who are you? Yes. And, 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 and I love your blog, your eyes slide down. Toronto Garden. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for people who go to the fling, every time you go to a fling, apparently you get a little button, and the button is about the size of a quarter, and it's, it's the button of that particular fling. So people who have been to all the flings are walking around with all these buttons on their name badges, and it reminded me of when I was a teenager and I went to Germany and I got a, a German hat, and every city I went to, I bought a pin from that, that town and would put it on this uh, German alpine hat and so um, I'm assuming that the bloggers are doing that when they go to these flings yeah they bring well, all their pins like, so yeah that's exactly a badge, badge of honor a badge yes of honor. it is a badge of honor well there you go so you know the other skill that garden bloggers practice is photography I mean they just go together you can't really be a garden blogger and not be taking pictures of the beautiful flowers so it's a skill that you need to learn uh, if you're going to be a garden blogger and I'm so curious where you guys are at in terms of how you would evaluate your mastery of photography so tell us everything from the camera you use to what apps you like to use or if you're Apple or Android or if you actually have the big you know, honking camera with all the special lenses. Why don't we go around and share kind of where we're at in the skill of photography? I'll skip in. I tell them. I have a DSLR, a Nikon D3200. It's not a fantastic high-end camera. It's very affordable. And I just use the basic kit lens mostly. I usually set it on aperture setting and uh you know, some people some people use the scene modes. One really good photographer I was talking to, I, I was trying to compare, you know, in these kind of light settings, what do you use? And she said, oh, I usually put it on the landscape setting or, you know, I, I sometimes use the flower that's the macro. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, you know, why do you talk about it? Whatever works, that's the thing. And I always yeah. bring extra batteries. I always bring a backup camera. And then if anything goes wrong, I always have my iPhone. Diana here, also bring, bring extra SD cards and bring your battery charger because you'll be amazed at how much you will use up. And I did run out of space one year. And luckily, another garden blogger had the foresight to bring an extra SD card, which she generously shared with me in the middle of the flinging day. So I now never leave home without extra battery, the charger, several extra SD cards. Um, and it's not good enough to bring them and leave them in the hotel room. You actually have to put them in your camera yeah. bag or your purse for the day. Yeah. If you get on the yeah. bus in the morning, then you don't get off until the evening. And so if something right. happens, uh, your umbrella, yeah. your um, little plastic cover for your camera, all of that is useless to you in your suitcase. Once you've got <laughs> Okay, this is Gail. I shoot with an Olympus OMD EM5. It's a, a digital camera, 
that has exchangeable lenses, but it's a mirrorless camera. So for someone who's developed wrist problems because they've gardened too much, it's a really lightweight camera. So I use the kit camera lens because it comes with this with particular lens. I have come with a little feature that allows me to do what I like to do. I don't do a lot of big long shots I because I'm so focused sometimes on the flower and the the, the critters that I love so much that I take a lot of um, macro shots and this one allows me to take some really nice close ups. Although I know you can do that with a zoom camera lens too. I have a Canon T three one Rebel, which is mm-hmm. a nice DSLR. It's kind of an entry level camera. But it has all of the fancy features. And what I like about it, the bag that you carry all day gets heavy. And the Canon comes with its standard mid-range lens is actually in a, in a plastic casing. So if you compare that lens to other similar range lenses, it's much lighter. And I don't bring lenses with me to the fling. I have them at home. I have wide angle and macro. I like this one because it has all of the functionality, but it's just a little lighter weight when it's hanging around your neck for 10 hours. This is Gail again. And the other thing about what I like about my camera is completely waterproof. So if we have a sudden shower, I'm my camera's fine. The other thing is I have an Android phone, which is also uh, waterproof. I just don't feel like the Android phone is not as good as an iPhone when I compare my photos to other people's photos with them. So I don't shoot with it very often. One, one trick that I have, although I'd love to have a waterproof camera, is I take the shower cap from the hotel and I tuck it into my purse. Because if oh. you get a sudden shower, you can just slip the shower cap over top of your camera and you can actually take pictures with it, you know, depending on which way you're pointing. Uh, because you can get your hands underneath the shower cap and keeps the keeps the rain off. Oh That's my gosh, great tip. that is an amazing yeah. tip. You know, um, we hadn't talked about the one thing that was a conversation right before playing, and that was our photo bags. How everybody wanted Kelly Warren bags purchased. Yes, we, as part of the giveaways, all the bloggers got a chance to win some prizes, and two of the prizes were these photo bags that were really, really high-end. Well, I don't know who won them. Do you remember? Chris won one. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Um, And I I can't remember who won the other one, but yeah, they're wonderful bags because you can You've got to carry your personal things all day, and you know I don't want to carry a separate bag. So this is a nice camera insert that allows you to have lots and lots of pockets and protect your camera when you know you go into a shop or you're going to lunch or something. You can tuck it away in there, and it's not it's not lost in your purse, but you still have a beautiful leather bag that looks like a purse instead of a camera bag. And you know, here's something else. There are so many photos, as most of you have been alluding to, when you're done with a fling. And I am always so fascinated by hearing about how people organize and save and then handle the post-production when it comes to dealing with all these photos. So could you share with us how you handle the production end of things when you get back from an event like the fling? This is Diana. You just squeeze it in as you can when life when life comes calling and you return home. I don't do all the photos at once. I usually do each post as I do it and breaks it down a little bit. Okay. Do you take them off your camera and store them on a computer or do you put them on a hard drive? What do you do with your images? Oh, that would be an entirely separate podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I take them for the time being. I do. I take the SD card off and I put them on my computer. Okay. Um, yeah, I take a lot of shots. I delete as many of them as I can, and then go back and if there's any editing or anything that needs to be done, try to get to that one post at a time. But okay. yeah, they're on my computer. This is Gail. They're stored on my computer, and when I get the time, which is not often enough, um, I put them on my hard drive. This is Helen. I have lost my camera more times than I'd like to admit. I must have good karma because somehow, miraculously, they've come back to me, but I think I've lost all my nine lives. But I know how scary that can be, and also I've had a couple of hard drive crashes where I've lost pictures as well. Um, managed to retrieve them using software, but um, not all of them because there were just too many. But what I do is I download my pictures onto my computer, but I don't delete them off the memory card. So that's my first backup. And memory cards these days are so inexpensive that all I do is I keep the memory card as a first backup and then they go onto my computer. They're saved in the cloud because I use photos on a Mac. And then I organize the, the photos into individual garden folders. And then when I get time, I export each garden in a folder onto an, another outboard hard drive. So I've got triple backup. And wow, Helen, that's impressive. It is, and um, a lot of work, too. Well, it's not as much work as, as it sounds to describe, but it is definitely a fail-safe because I know that if anything happens on the cloud or anything happens to my outboard hard drive, I at least now have a backup on the individual memory card. If I run out of space on the memory card, I just buy another memory card. Yes. Right. The other thing I've been meaning to do, because sometimes it's easy to find a really big memory card and you think, oh, I want to have a lot of space for that. And this is what I've been meaning to do. Having lost my camera uh, at key points with all of my pictures on is to get one memory card, smaller one, for every day and change it out in the, in the morning. Uh, I did that because I didn't want even to be interrupted in the middle of the garden with having to fish around for, you know, a new SD card. So just out of an abundance of caution, I went ahead and changed mine out each day at this point so that I wouldn't be, you know, out in the middle of the garden somewhere rushing to get back on the bus, but wanting that last shot and not being able to take it. Mm -hmm. I like that idea. And, you know, I got my first DSLR camera uh, this Christmas and I got one for my daughter as well. I got us the same same kind. It's a Nikon uh, entry level camera, not a big deal. Um, but I would take it along to my son's basketball tournaments, and I was taking so many pictures because, of course, you know they're running and it's hard to get a good uh, picture. So I would just do the spray and pray, you know, model where I'm just like shooting like crazy. I think I would do about a thousand pictures per game. So I ended up needing to buy, needless to say, a lot of SD cards. And my little piece of advice for if you're using multiple cards is to take a label maker and number them. So I have yeah. a little pouch that I keep it in. And then if you're starting an event, if you know all your SD cards are blank, you can start with one and then go through that way. Otherwise, you kind of forget, you know, the order, you know, that they go in and you can't remember which SD card is which. So it's good to have something on there that you can kind of keep track of. That's a great idea, too. 
So how do you ladies decide when you get back from a big event like the fling, how do you decide what to blog about first? I usually do an overview. I have to say there's always one garden that that sort of becomes my favorite, and that's the one that you write about. I don't generally do a a post about every garden. The gardens that speak to me the loudest are the ones that get their first attention. For me, it's Helen. I just start with whatever strikes me most. I know some people do it as a day-by-day, or they do an overview, or garden-by-garden, but really, whatever is most memorable is where I begin. Um, Then whenever I'm blogging, especially because many of the gardens we see are in a different zone and quite a different climate, I try and find a local, I guess, angle, something, whatever it is that just talks generally about design or a universal point of view, especially Things get me thinking, and that's where I begin. This is, this yeah. is Diana. Um, I do the same thing. I just kind of start with the gardens that really spoke to me most. Well, thank you for that, ladies. Why don't we close by having you talk about where we can find you online, and then what, if any, upcoming events you guys have? This is Diana. I'll start. Uh, you can find my garden blog online at www.sharingnaturesgarden.com dot blogspot.com. Um, I'm also at Diana's Designs Austin.com and Facebook, Diana C. Hanna Kirby, K-I-R-B-Y. My Twitter handle is at Sharing Garden, uh, Sharing Garden for Instagram, and I have a Pinterest page under Diana Kirby. Oh, that's great. Uh, Gail? Um, you can find me at www.clayandand, and then limestone, L-I-M-E-S-T-O-N-E, limestone.com. Then I'm on Facebook under my name, Gail Eichelberger. I'm also under my blog name, but most of the time you can find me on Gail Eichelberger. I'm also on Twitter, but I'm not a huge Twitter user. And then one more thing is that I have a meme that I do once a month. It's on Wildflower Wednesday, and I try to educate people about wildflowers and encourage people to plant them. It's fun. Okay, and do people send you wildflower pictures? Yes, they do, and they ask me to identify them. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Now, if they wanted to send you a picture, where would they send the picture to? They could send an email on my blog. Okay, perfect. Okay, Helen. TorontoGarden.com. And we have a Facebook page. You can search for us on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest, all under at GardenFix, G-A-R-D-E-N-F-I-S. I can't spell it. But we also have an Instagram feed that we just started at Toronto Gardens, but it's Toronto underscore Gardens. And unfortunately, someone nabbed Toronto Gardens before we did. And on the Instagram feed, that's about the only thing I do automate um, because I use a, a little app called IFTTT, yes. uh, which, sta- which stands for If This Then That. It's like a little macro maker that allows you to do things automatically. And what that does is whenever I post a picture to Instagram, then IFTTT allows it to post to Twitter instead of sometimes if you automate an Instagram uh, cross-post to Twitter, it will just show a link. Well, IFTTT makes it show up as a picture. We've been blogging, as I said before, on uh, Toronto Gardens since 2006. So when our 
October anniversary comes up in October, we're going to be thinking of planning a month of events just to celebrate that milestone for us. And, of course, the big leap was to transfer from Blogger to WordPress. So I'm really happy with the results. Well, and that is a huge milestone. So I'm glad to hear that you're going to be celebrating that. And that's coming up in October, you said? Yes. The actual anniversary is the end of October the 26th. Well, ladies, I can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts and experiences on day three of the Garden Bloggers Fling 2016 in my city, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I just am so thankful for all the time that you've spent today. You were very, very generous, and I can't thank you enough. Thank Thank you. you. Great. I had a lot of fun. It was fun. Yes, it was. And we need to laugh more. (laughs) (laughs) And it was good to laugh about it, too. Absolutely. It was good. Thank you again, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Have a really wonderful weekend. All right. You too. Bye-bye. I'm going to miss you guys. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank the great bloggers that helped me go through day three of the Garden Bloggers Fling in Minneapolis in 2016, and they are Helen Battersby of the blog Toronto Gardens. They've been blogging 10 years. This is their 10-year anniversary this month. She blogs with her sister. Please check out Toronto Gardens. Gail Eichelberger, wildflower passionate expert and the author of the blog Clay and Limestone out of Nashville, Tennessee. Diana Kirby of Austin, Texas, and she blogs at Sharing Nature's Garden. And then, of course, Julie Thompson Adolph out of South Carolina and the blog Garden Delights. And Julie, I am so sad that you had to miss out on the back half of the show, but totally understand being a mom always comes first. Those lucky, lucky kids of ours, right? Well, remember the whole point of these episodes has been to expose you to the Garden Bloggers Fling. If you are a garden blogger and you've been wondering what it's all about, this has given you a true vicarious experience of what it's like to be a garden blogger and go to the Garden Bloggers Fling. And if you're not a blogger, I hope you've enjoyed just touring the gardens with us as we relived some of the highlights and shared our insights. So now don't forget, if you're interested in going to next year's 2017 Garden Bloggers Fling in the Capital Region, you can find out more information by just Googling Garden Bloggers Fling, and that will take you to the website. And you can also find out information on Tammy Schmidt's blog, casamariposa.blogspot.com. And she's the blogger out of Northern Virginia. She's the host of next year's Fling. She's organizing the whole shebang. And she was on the episode of the first day of the Garden Bloggers Fling. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it. Tammy tells all about next year's Garden Bloggers Fling. Capacity will be limited to 100 people. I think they're well over 50 at this point. So make sure if you're a blogger and you want to attend that you get registered ASAP. And then if you go, make sure you let me know so that we can hang out together. I'll show you the ropes. (laughs) It's not that hard. We can just chill together. And if you really like the show and you want to connect, I'd like to invite you once again to join the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. It's such a great place to ask your questions. You can share your own garden stories. You can see some pictures from my garden. And some of the other listeners are sharing things that they're doing. And of course, you can interact with the great guests that I have on the show. And don't forget, it's also the only place where I share all of the awesome promotions and garden giveaways for the still growing listener community. So go ahead, 
check it out. I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. Well, of course, I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions for helping me get the show out, David Myers, I'm Kadena, and David Gregerson, and of course, my podcast assistant, Taylor Davey. Just a reminder that I'll have all of the information from the show today on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. I also have a link there that'll take you to the Still Growing Podcast group. So you just have to click in the menu there if you want to check that out with links to posts about the fling and how to attend next year's fling in Washington, D.C. Phew, that's a wrap. Have a great weekend, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.